Well, guys, I want to thank you for tuning in to the Youth and Culture podcast, where youth ministry and culture collide. I am your host, Ryan Sebastian, and I am joined with my co-host, David Pinkham. You know, I've got a question, Ryan. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, and uh, brace yourself because this is a deep theological issue. When I go back after our episodes are released and I hear you say that intro, there is a particular sound I hear when you say the word collide <laughs> in my head. <laughs> and I want to know from our listeners, do they hear like a loud explosion or is it like a tink or somewhere in between of what that collision looks like in their brain? <laughs> I don't know. Especially when you, when you think about culture and ministry in our context or today's context, mm. especially a post-COVID context, Mm. you can can see more of an explosion in some ways, especially, um, man, when you had had, uh, something like COVID bring in so much division Mm. and just bickering and, quite frankly, revealing where people's hearts truly are, and you have that kind of aspect. Mm. So in in that perspective, I see it as more of an explosion. That's yeah, I, I've also thought about it, though, like it is it's a collision of youth ministry and culture. And I I think there's a lot of our youth these days that the culture is sucker punching them um, or or uh, doing the whole bait and switch kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. Satan's typical yeah. M.O., the bait and switch. Oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> Never mind. You're now enslaved to sin. <laughs> um, so there's that. But um when it specifically comes to like our job as people who work with students and their families, um, it, it almost, I, I don't know if, if you've ever felt like this, but um, it almost feels like there's a bunch of us with these massive shields that we have found, you know, made out of faith. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we're trying to protect our youth and our children and our families. And while the slings and arrows and the things that are coming at us from the world and from the evil one are bouncing off the front, there's people behind us in the church um, complaining. <laughs> why, why are you blocking? We can't see. <laughs> and so they're throwing stuff at us from the other side, and we're not protected on that side. <laughs> so I don't know. Is it an explosion or is it more like a Roman battlefield? <laughs> Have you well, seen that trend going around on social media of women asking their husbands how often they think about the Roman Empire on a weekly basis? I don't think I've seen that one. <laughs> I'm, dude, everything will trend. Anything will trend these days. Like literally anything will trend. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think us the cat video stuff kind of proved that, <laughs> that anything will trend. I'm pretty sure if we had to go back and find like what the first viral wave on the internet was, it was probably cat videos. I I would have to agree with that. Yeah. 
Uh, when we talk about ministry, I want to talk uh, ministry and <laughs> culture colliding a little bit. It, it, a lot of it has to do with your perspective and, your, and where you're at and all this stuff. But the, we attitude. do know, and we talk about a lot of a lot on on the podcast is uh, even personally uh, mm-hmm. when me and David when we're talking about talking before or after recording. Uh, it's, it is when it comes to ministry and culture. Uh, there is a constant battle being fought because uh, we're supposed to, as, as a church, we're supposed to be in culture and confronting culture. Uh, but doing again, going back to First Peter three fifteen, doing it with gentleness and respect, um, but still confronting and giving the hope that's within us. Uh, so still confronting, but the by the same time, there, it is a constant battle. Yep. Uh, constant battle where you're a parent to have with a teenager uh, and I'm about to have a teenager in student ministry next, next year, which is crazy to think about uh, uh, and dealing with culture and, and what's the best, best way of handling uh, things like social media phones. When's the right time to get your kid a phone, uh, which I have my opinion about 35. that. 35. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have a strong opinion that's that's connected to research. Let's put it that way. It's yeah. not it's not a just a feel opinion. Oh. It's based off research. We'll but, do an uh, episode about it. Yeah, we should. Do uh, but yes, yeah, so yes. Yeah, so I, I think it's a constant battle. That's what I think about explosion. Just man, it just seems like uh, COVID. Not say it wasn't there before COVID. I just think COVID it was brilliant. Uh, yeah, just 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 was the linchpin in some ways that. Uh, man, it's just, just, I can't put it into words as much as just most divisiveness, polarization within, we see culture enter the church in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think, so this actually kind of goes to what the interview about today is about. Um, there's a reality that we live with that I, I, I literally cannot stand this statement. I'm going to say it. Um, I hate, I hate this statement because it's one of the most untrue, true statements (laughs) that we live with and it's perception is reality. That is one of the most garbage statements ever. And it's true. And I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true because the, the part of it that's true is the way people perceive things that that's real to them, whether that's actually real or not. That's, that's how they see life. That's how they see things. I, I hate this phrase, but it's how they feel. And it's, it, and it's not always based on objective reality. So it is a, conceptual reality that we live with but it's also garbage because it's not necessarily true if yep. you're perceiving something some way i we could get on this on the podcast and you and i could have a conversation before we start recording and disagree about something and and we could both have different perspectives and we're going to choose to walk away from that conversation and still be friends and still record the podcast and get over it and move on with our lives but there are some people who they take their perception and they make it like a part of their identity. And if you don't agree with them, oh man, hell hath no fury. <laughs> like you're you're dead to them or or something crazy like that. And and that's a it's a very frustrating reality to live with that we live in a world that is paradoxically experiencing the truth and the falseness of perception is reality. And it drives me nuts. <laughs> 
I, I, I think everybody, everybody who has heard that probably can say the same thing again. That might be something we need to hit on a little bit definitely in the future a little bit, and, mm-hmm. and how that relates to ministry. But how that relates to what we're talking about today is so we uh, I had opportunity to to interview uh, one of one of my good friends, uh, Josh Watman. Very, very smart, um, a very smart guy. Again, he's he's a now a professor at Liberty University right now in the School of Divinity. Uh, he teaches theology and other things as well. But he wrote a book, and when I saw that he that this book, I said I had I had to buy it uh, first of all, and then I had to talk to him about the book. And the title of it is, is "Why Does God Seem So." Hidden. Hmm. I just want to read just a little little snippet of the back of the book that kind of gives a description. And it says, Why does God seem so hidden, obscure, and silent? Why doesn't he make himself known in a more explicit way to those who dispute his existence? Um, this this argument that and it comes is is refuting the argument that. Uh, God doesn't exist because God is silent. There's no revealing of who he is. And because of that, there is no God. That's basically the gist that this book kind of refutes. And the reason why I wanted to talk talk to, to Josh and interview him about this uh, subject particularly is because it is something that our students also ask. Um, I've been asked this question by students several times. Uh, if if God if God is real, why doesn't He reveal Himself? If God is real, what won't, what why don't we see God do stuff? Why isn't uh, things more vis- visible when it comes to seeing God's glory, who He is, all that involved, or even and, where was God when? Yes, even that, even that, which yeah. when you're dealing with hard issues, where was God? And so, so I wanted to talk to Josh, particularly to hash this out. Again, this is a book that is, it is a difficult book, it's a more academic book, uh, but the concepts here is, for us as pastors, is something that I think every, every particularly student pastors, but every pastor for that matter, needs to dive into and understand how to give an answer to because this is a common common question that we all deal with in ministry. Yeah, and and I think that one of the things that's important for us to remember when having this conversation is that um this is actually something I've I've talked about recently with somebody and uh I'll I'll this last thing I'll say before we hit hit play but there's going to be answers that we find to questions that we may not like. Um and uh, I'll use the example, even though apparently this is racist now. Um, I'll use this example because I always use it. Two plus two equals four, even if that hurts your feelings. So um, we, <laughs> it's, good, it's good to ask questions, um, but we can't fall into the trap that I think Paul warns us about of always seeking knowledge but never arriving at the truth. Um, when, when we arrive at the truth, we, we have to deal with it and how it makes us feel while still recognizing this is the truth, even if I don't like it. Well, guys, stay tuned as we talk with Josh Wall.
Well, guys, I am super excited about today's episode because I get to interview a very good friend of mine uh, from college. Uh, his name is Josh Waltman, and I'll get to interview him about a book that he recently released. But before we get into that, uh, Josh, how about you could tell us, introduce yourself a little bit and kind of tell us uh, your story. Man, that's always a dangerous question. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on here with you. Uh, as far as my story, I guess my salvation story or just story in ministry or what? Ministry, story in ministry. Okay. Uh, sure. So um, for me, I, I got saved as a teenager and went, ended up having all of these theological questions and things. And uh, it was just natural for me to go off and try to get a theological education to try to understand some of the issues that I was wrestling with. And found myself at Liberty University and uh, was discipled there quite a bit um, and found myself uh, called into ministry. But I always, it seems like for me, I always go the really non-traditional route. And so entered uh, at a church, uh, served in that capacity, um, graduated, continued to work on school, but also just uh, felt led to do the bivocational thing. Uh, did the bivocational thing for... So yeah, I was a bivocational pastor, teaching pastor at a church in Richmond, Chester, actually, Chester, Virginia, uh, for about five years. And um, after that, I, I've been working on a PhD in theology and apologetics, and um, now I'm serving as a professor of theology and apologetics at Liberty. So um, as far as ministry goes, um, it has involved some church work. Uh, I've been doing itinerant preaching for years. Um, in and out of churches, uh, helping those with uh, theology training as well, and uh, but also within the university setting, uh, spending a lot of time with students and uh, teaching in the classroom. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting for me going back when we're, we were in the dorm in college. I have to I have to say I have to bring this up. And I don't know, Josh. I don't know if you remember uh, that we would pick a topic and we'll mm -hmm. basically go back and forth debating that topic. I don't know if you remember that. We were real nerds, and I say that in the past tense because, you know, we're no longer nerds. But Yeah, if, if people don't think that, again, me being a uh, youth ministry, youth pastor, people, I, I guess you don't really think of youth pastors being nerds, but I, I love that aspect of, uh, I love apologetics, I love uh, deep theo theological thinking, um, I just love that aspect. That's the reason, reason on this podcast we've had people like Andrew Root. Uh, who's who's a Princeton Seminary graduate who works in uh, Yale Yale Seminary doing some a grant work there. Um, we've even several people that are way smarter than me, but I love the, that type of thinking of deep diving um, with people like J uh, J P Moreland and a lot of his mm -hmm. books and uh, loving God with all your heart, which I'm going with through with a teenager like right now. That, that just that type of thinking, and I yeah. really love the book that you you just came out with, even though it is more of an academic book, yeah, it is more of a, of a deep book. But how about you? T I want you to share the title of this book and I want you to spend some time, uh, maybe just kind of give a synopsis of what this book is about. Yeah. Th thanks for that. I mean, I always did like to have those debates with you in college for sure. I always tried to find like the most controversial topic so that I could get you going for the, for the day. You know? And sometimes I just, I just found the position that I knew you didn't agree with just to have fun with it. Uh, not true. the case with this book. Uh, so the title of the book, you mentioned it is an academic book, uh, but the title is, Why Does God Seem So Hidden? 
Um, and so, I, you know, it, it's an academic work. It's representative of the work that I did for my dissertation. Um, but it is a very personal topic to me. Um, you know, I think that this is something that it's got really, really good research. It's going to go, it's going to take the reader pretty deep, but it's also something that's pretty accessible. At least I hope that it is, um, that you could sit down and, you know, spend a, a couple of weeks reading through and, and really get something from. But as far as where this is coming from, uh, the gist is this, when I was saved in high school, I spent it really, what, what happened for me was sort of a crisis. I, mean, I think probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with what happens with teenagers and they're trying to figure out what's going on in their lives and trying to figure out like, how, how do you, how do you choose a career path? What do you do with, uh, for me, it was like, should I play college football? Should I go to a certain school? And like, what do I want to do with my life? I concluded, uh, and that there was nothing new under the sun. Everything was meaningless. Uh, there's nothing that I could do that had any real value that I could be a millionaire, that I could have all of the glory of college football. Like none of that really meant anything. Uh, and so I just started to, to search for meaning, for purpose, uh, for anything that uh, would, would give me some sort of value in life. And for about three months, I read the Bible for the first time for myself uh, in my bed alone at night. And so I guess this is a pretty atypical conversion. But for me, I actually came to know the Lord by virtue of reading scripture by myself, no one led me um, that really the, the Bible did and the spirit did, but um, no one sat down with me and shared the gospel. I read it in the pages of scripture and I had a very profound experience. Um, it, you know, again, alone at night in my bedroom, um, talking to the Lord and trying to figure this stuff out that it was a religious experience that absolutely transformed my life. Obviously I submitted myself to, to, to Jesus and took him across to follow him. And it, it completely reoriented and reshaped everything that I, that I wanted in life. I actually ended up quitting football, um, you know, because it was an idol in my life and I needed to get that out. Um, I found myself caring a whole lot more about telling others about Jesus. And I had all of these theological questions that came with that. One of those questions was this, why is it that God would speak to me in my bedroom at night and it would change my life so dramatically? It would completely reshape how I thought about my trajectory in life. And yet I, I talked to others and some of those people would even tell me, I don't even believe God exists. There's not enough evidence that, to, to, to convince me that God even exists. And yet here I am completely changing my life to follow Jesus. So it seems that God is hidden uh, for some people at some times, uh, maybe for everyone at certain times. There's a, there's a certain hiddenness um, to God's, like this phenomenon is a real phenomenon. The Psalms even talk about this, you know, God, why have you hidden your face from me? Like, wake up. Are you sleeping? Where are you? These kinds of questions. Uh, and so I go off to college trying to find answers and it took me, goodness, uh, 10, 15 years to find a satisfactory answer. Uh, and in college, I came across this atheist, uh, famous atheist. He's, he's based in Canada, uh, philosopher, J.L. Schellenberg is his name. And he came up with an argument for atheism um, based on this phenomenon of the, God, of the hiddenness of God, that if God is all loving and all powerful, he has the resources to make himself known uh, to people that would believe if there was supposedly enough evidence uh, to convince them, um, 
you know, and so why doesn't he? He must, he must not exist is the conclusion that this atheist makes. And of course, it's much more nuanced than that, much more uh, to it than that. But that's the gist. And I, I got to be honest with you, Ryan, I, I struggled with this for a long time. This is probably the biggest. People have different catalysts for doubt in their own faith and their walk. This is the biggest catalyst for, for doubt over the course of the last 10, 15 years for me is like, why is God so why is his presence withheld from people when they would believe uh, or even from Christians when they're going through times of real pain or struggle? Um, why is God's presence withheld or at least seemingly to be withheld? Um, and so I just really wanted a satisfactory answer to that. What is God doing and limiting his manifest presence in the lives of believers and unbelievers, even to the point where this atheist is putting together an argument? to uh, you know, support his atheism. So uh, the book is really an answer to that. Uh, in a nutshell, I answer it using Trinitarian theology. So uh, I deal with atheism. I deal with the argument for hedonists by explaining why the triune God would choose to reveal himself in the way that he does. That kind of brings up the next thing I, I want to kind of ask because the book brings out like real struggles and average person's faces about God. And you, you kind of share this in your own life. And I, I really think this topic is important, but I do want to get your input on this too. This question right here is, do you think this topic is important for, for the youth pastor to grasp and why? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I'm not just saying that cause I wrote a book. Okay. Um, I actually, here, here's what I would say. I think if you had asked me maybe when I first became a believer, what was the biggest issue that you run across people in terms of having objections to Christianity or um, it would have been the problem of evil. Uh, maybe your listeners are probably familiar with that. If God is all loving, all powerful, why does evil exist? Um, now I think we, we probably would say it, it has to do either with a, a society and ideologies within society related to sexual revolution, uh, related to uh, ex expressive individualism and that sort of thing, or it has to do with something involving God's hiddenness or the lack of his presence to comfort us in our time of need. Um, I, I just, I can't tell you in my time as pastor, how many times I could go and talk to someone that was grieving and they understood, like we could talk about, let's say someone's uh, child died in a car accident. We could talk about free will and explain why God would have allowed that to happen based on the actions of others. Like that's that that comforts and that explains some of that. And, and that's not so, too hard to get your mind wrapped around. But what often in ministry that, that people couldn't get their minds wrapped around was like, where is God when I need him? Like I'm, I'm going through this this time of great pain of suffering or depression. Uh, I feel just completely alone. Uh, if he loves me, why is he not making himself and his presence more known? Uh, and so I think that that's something that's intensely practical for any minister to wrestle with these things. Like, what is God trying to teach us in dealing with, um, you know, uh, the fact that he's not showing up in our bedroom at night in a physical form to give us a hug when we need it? Uh, you know, like that's not how God chooses to communicate with us most of the time. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think that underlies a lot of hiccups that people have in their walk of faith. Yeah, and it kind of brings up the next uh, 
a point. And the reason why I w- wanted to kind of sh- get your viewpoint on this is because I really believe when it comes to teenagers, mm-hmm. uh, this is a big sticking point. Um, mm-hmm. I again, I, I think I think when we were when we were in high school and and. I I think that the problem of evil and things like that were a little bit more were prevalent uh, in pushback for Christianity, things like that. But I think it's shifted a little bit. One of the being is that Gen Z is the most unreached uh, generation in history, but it's the most open to spiritual things. So right. so, so they're, they're the generation that's the easiest to reach with the gospel. Right. And the other generation before. Uh, but one thing that they don't have is they don't have a modernity type of mindset. Uh, it's almost post post modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I can, we can get to that, what that means, but that's another topic for another day. But um, so because of that, it's more uh, the, the train of thought is more fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't believe again, don't believe in absolute truth. That's still connected to modernism or postmodernism. Um, so with that, it kind of, I think those thought process leads to this in some form or fashion of why is it, why am I experiencing feeling because postmodernism and post and post postmodernism, whatever you call it, it's all connecting that thought of feeling. That's the reason why you hear a lot of this from um, sitting in church long enough and you'll mm-hmm. hear this phrase, I feel mm-hmm. blah, 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 and finish the ceiling, finish the sentence. That is ingrained even in Gen Z. So right. this, I feel, I think it's it's really connected to this, a topic right here within your book. I really believe that this is something that teenagers struggle with. Yeah. Um, and I think we all struggle to a point, but I think really right now in our culture is where our culture is at. This topic right here is the linchpin where a lot of teens struggle with uh, when in relation to Christianity, in relation to God. Yeah, you know, um, you're right. I, I have, I mean, just anecdotally, I can, I can see that, you know, in my own experiences that the millennial generation, Gen Z, and so forth, there is a, a tremendous, um, there's a tremendous focus on experience as sort of a, a way to know truth. Um, where, you know, and there's even a move away from what we're called naturalism, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the belief of pure rationality and reason and that there's, you know, experience becomes a way of not of knowing something to be true uh, for our generation and, and, and younger, especially like you said. Uh, but there's some there's some initial problems with that. Um, for, for one, that means that we're sort of blown about by our religious experiences and everyone's experience is very different. Uh, how do you know what, in fact, you should believe about the world? How do you know which one is legit? Um, and so, you know, I, I, something I wrestle with quite a bit in the book, it's like, okay, uh, God does reveal himself through religious experiences. He certainly, certainly did that with me. But like, what if, what if he doesn't what if he doesn't do that with someone else or if their experience is quite different or even contradictory when it comes to, you know, for instance, Muslims have experiences in their faith, like, and that is a contradictory experience. So how do we figure out in all of this diversity of experience, which one is real? Um, one of the things that I'd say, maybe kind of getting to some of the content of the book here is uh, I, I, I come up with a series of criteria 
um, I will call them uh, criteria to expose like some of the spiritual bias that we have when we look at ex- when we look at experiences when we try to decide what is true. And I try to work through in the book, like what would be something that keeps someone from believing the evidence that that God exists and that Jesus is Lord. Um, and even in an experiential way, like what, what is it that keeps us from belief uh, in seeing the evidence for what it is? And so an example of something like that would be someone has to be open to the supernatural worldview, right? And Gen Z's, I think probably for the most part, the rule, not the exception are pretty open for sure. Um, but because we're fallen in sin, they may, they may not be as open to other criteria. For, for instance, um, being open to moral transformation uh, is another criteria I talk about in the book. Um, you have to genuinely desire to give up your sinful rebellion against God. And so framing things in these, in these terms and recognizing, hey, like the way we understand information and process information or even revelation, uh, trying to get outside of those biases that we've created because we're falling in sin. Like, I think that can be really helpful as you work through some of these issues with your teenagers or with those in your, in your, you know, in your, uh, your group. No, I, no, I absolutely agree, man. Again, I, I, first of all, I'm interviewing because you're, you're my friend. I love you to death. But also the book you released is to me is so timely, um, just in our culture because we're we're again I, most of us are here are listening. They're listening to you, um, understand and have dealt with these issues day in and day out with teens mm-hmm. and students uh, struggling with the faith, having doubts. Right. We're seeing we're seeing roughly there's been uh, research coming out, multiple research points uh, pointing to the fact that we're losing about a million teenagers a year. Wow. Uh, and and though part of that, it's evangelical, supposedly evangelical teenagers that are walking away from the faith altogether. Mm. Because these type of questions are not yeah. answered and answered well, uh, we're instead of, and again, and, and this is another linchpin I'm going to, um, I'm going to unleash and I don't want to get too, too far in this topic a little bit, but I think part of it is, is, we, as a church body, not not all churches, but the American church culture, has has developed church around feeling, mm. and, and for the sake of being relevant. Mm. Uh, and in other words, we and again, everything I'm saying is not necessarily bad. It's just the motives behind it is right. uh, is the type of from lighting we do it. We lights and smoke machines. Um, to even the type of music you worship music you're playing and everything with the vocal point of, of producing a feeling type of environment thinking right. that worship is a feeling feelings are involved but worship is more than just a feeling it's a choice it's an it's a constant it's a decision into bring yourself into worshiping our god or creator not right. a feeling. I mean, those feelings are still there, still present, right. but that's not the vocal point. And I think that church as a whole, the American church has kind of possibly leaned more towards being relevant in feeling hmm. than relevant in truth. Yes. Amen. Look, I, so much to talk about there. Um, yeah, I, I think 
even even our concepts, I mean, it extends even beyond how we think of God. It extends to how we think of our spouse and you know, the the sense of love. Um, people that I've that I've counseled for uh, premarital, you know, one of the first things I talk about is, hey, look, love is a choice. It is not you don't fall in and out of love. Those feelings are there sometimes, but sometimes they're not. Uh, I can tell you as a father, I would say a lot of times they're not. <laughs> Yeah, as a father with a three-year-old, right? Like there are times when I am not feeling the love. You know what I mean? Uh, He tests my patience, but I'm choosing to love him. Uh, And that's, you know, that's very much more in line with the biblical concept of love within those those, uh, relationships. And I think, you know, so so it makes sense if, if our concept of, you know, trying to find someone to date and marry is a, a, a falling in and out of love sort of idea, that that's kind of what we do with God as well as a generation. Um, it's like, how do we fabricate or create the conditions within a church environment to allow the spirit to let us fall in love with them? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a problem for a lot of reasons. I actually, I don't have a problem necessarily with, hey, like, I love worship. You know that I play music. I played music for a long time. Um, I have a problem with the manipulation of emotion to the detriment of genuine biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, people need to choose to follow Jesus with eyes wide open of what that means. Um, so to your to your point here, J.L. Schellenberg, the atheist that I mentioned before that I, I'm, I'm really dealing with it in the book, was a former Christian who went off to college dealt with this issue in a philosophy program and left the faith. Um, another example that comes to mind a few years ago, I think it was uh, the, the lead man for the, for the, the band Hawk Nelson mm-hmm. uh, came out with a series of posts with all of these like objections, like why does God have to kill his son? And, you know, all of these theological questions and, and, and because he didn't have an answer to those things, his conclusion was, well, I'm just going to leave the faith. But, you know, when I read those objections, I'll be honest with you. The first thing I thought was, like, have you talked to a pastor? Because literally every single one of those questions have been answered for the last 2000 years. Like there's there's been there's more there's more theological writing on those things than I ever in my entire life could never get through all of that. So, like, the answers are there. It's just you have not been trained to go and find those answers or you're simply relying on the sort of worshipful uh, culture and environment that you've been into where you're not finding them in that culture. And that, that's an inherent problem. Um, you know, it's something else that comes to mind here. Uh, when, when we do theology in my theology sort of intro classes, I talk about like there are different data points for theology, right? You can, you can look at, for instance, scripture, you can look at tradition, you can look at reason, uh, you can look at experience. Right. And you can pull from each of those. And, you know, I would even advocate that there are some denominations that prioritize you know, some of those over others. Uh, but by and large, a generation is look, you know, our generation and younger are looking for experience. They're pulling their theology from their experience. And we as pastors, we as elders and so forth, those that are discipling, we have got to help people transition from prioritizing experience primarily into prioritizing scripture, uh, recognizing that, of course, we need to have the experience of knowing Jesus, mm-hmm. 
But like what that means and how we interpret that and how we live it out, uh, that has to be founded first and foremost on scripture. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I would even go so far as to say the discipleship process in the American church today, big picture involves that transformation, that switch. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's, that's an umbrella sort of bird's eye view of what we're trying to accomplish. No, no, I agree. So uh, this all comes down, even answering this, this question, your book does come down to getting one thing where that, that's a discipleship. Right. I, I really, everything you can, every, uh, nuance and culture and church culture, um, if you really get the nitty gritty of it and really get deep enough, it really, the focal point always comes down to discipleship. Hmm. Um, even from a, from a student ministry, a youth ministry perspective of, again, I'm going to be preaching this, this Sunday, and I'm going to be talking a little bit with our congregation, the history of youth ministry. Our youth ministry actually started out uh, as in a uh, parachurch ministries in the, in the 1940s, uh, to re- it was an evangelistic. It was sharing your faith. Uh, there's still a discipleship there, but it wasn't disciple. It wasn't. It was meant to meant for reaching people for Christ and funneling them into churches. Uh, that's why it started out as. And over time, in the 1970s, you had churches buying into this and saying, "Hey, this sounds great. Let's start implementing this." And our churches, so you sort of something that was a parachurch that was evangelistic only in mindset, mm-hmm. put it in churches, and again, evangelistic only in mindset, with maybe some discipleship, but discipleship wasn't necessarily the focal point in it. And what evolved over time is where we're at right now, to where we're literally losing a million teenagers every year. Um Again, there's exceptions to that. This again, this is a generality. We're looking at the big picture. Uh, there's churches that underneath that timeline doesn't necessarily fall into that camp. But again, right. we're looking at the big picture here. Um, so obviously, obviously, even from that standpoint, um, that even from a youth from a youth ministry perspective, we have not done a good job in discipleship in answering these questions. Because right. Right, right now I'm dealing with a teenager who asked specific, specific questions that he's wrestling with. And again, he's, he's an atheist. And that is one of the questions that he's asked me. God is all-powerful. Why can't I experience him, see him? Where is he at? Yeah. Um, again, he's, he's just some struggles in his life. And, I have to, and I'm walking through that journey with him. But I don't think, again, going back to the next question I want to ask is, I don't think a, a, lot, of, a lot of apologetic style and theology, really deep discipleship is done to teens, mm-hmm. teenagers, because we see them as not able to handle it. In reality, culture has dictated that. Right. And that's, and that's filtered into church culture um, to where we see almost, without even thinking about it, we see... Mm-hmm students as less than that they can't handle it. And the result of that is that they're having these questions that are not being answered. So, so knowing that this is a, again, a deep book, uh, you kind of answered some of this already, but why should youth pastors think deeply about theology and apologetics? Yeah, man, gosh, what a good question. I mean, a lot of answers to this one would be because you, you have to have it in the well in order to pull it up when you need it in discipling others. So is it, is it, 
are you probably going to read excerpts of this book to your students? Probably not. It's probably on a level that they're not prepared for. But if you have thought deeply through this stuff and like you have the best of the best in terms of arguments and dealing with some of the biggest objections out there from even in this case, an academic context, like you're going to be better prepared to deal with the stuff at sort of the, the, the layman level that comes up. But you're going to be a lot more confident in dealing with that. So I, I would say that first. But as far as dealing with theology and apologetics here, I mean, I'm one, and we've talked about this many times, I'm one that would be quick to say that I love theology because I love Jesus. Like that, you can't, you can't love your wife, for instance, and know nothing about her. Um, and so theology is the study of God. I love Jesus. I love the Lord. So I want to know as much about him as I possibly can. Uh, and yes, it's true that, you know, we can't, just do orthodox belief and not care about orthopraxy and right living. Right belief has to lead to right living. But what I see very often, especially in the youth ministry context, at least in my experience, is that there's a huge emphasis on right living to the detriment of right belief. And then if you do that, you don't have the foundation for why people should live the way that, that we're, we're calling them to live in godliness and holiness and righteousness. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that going on. I, I think too. Look, you know, we're we're dealing with spiritual warfare. Um, we're dealing with combating the enemy, uh, the powers and principalities of the world, the the ideologies that have been put out there, the ungodly ideologies that are being perpetuated in our culture, and like those things are not easily discerned. Sometimes they're very complicated. They're very difficult. You have to unwrap them. Um, you, you know, and, and they're sort of built into the cake uh, in a lot of school systems and things like, you know, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, and in order to have your students to be able to even do that, like to really understand what's been fabricated or what's, uh, what's false, uh, you have to give them a really f- like a uh, big dose in the truth. Um, you know, that's the best way to deal with a counterfeit anything is to really know what is real. And then you can compare that against what's been counterfeited. Uh, so I think, you know, theology, people ask me sometimes, I'll never forget, actually, uh, when I was pastoring bivocationally, we were going to do a theology summer summer uh, class. And we were going to walk through some of the basics of the faith. And one of the the, the parents of a teenager that, wanted, that, that was going to attend, their objection was, well, why can't you guys do something fun? Because I don't want my kid to not want to come to church. <laughs> and, you know, the, the idea was, hey, like, unless you give them something fun, they're just going to want to go up the road to the next church and they're not going to want to attend here at all because they'll go to some student ministry that has games on it Wednesday night. Um, you know, and I have n- nothing against games. OK, uh, you know, but but you're right. People think that if you try to give them the deep, rich, good, you know, hearty meal uh, of the faith, that somehow they're going to, they're not, they're not going to appreciate it. Um, they're not going to want to keep coming. But I think it's the, I think it's the flip of that. Like, I think, I think a lot of people, a lot of people, once they realize, hey, I'm being taken seriously, like I am really learning something here. 
I'm really growing. Like that is what ends up becoming the very thing that brings them back week after week. Uh, instead of just the surface level, uh, you know, I'm going to come for the games and have fun and see my friends, like give them something to chew on, give them Jesus and like, let them, let them get infatuated with the Lord. And so they continue to grow. Like, I don't want bait and switch. I don't want to bait and switch my youth ministry. Right. I don't want them to just come for the games and I'll, I'll switch it out with a little bit of Jesus at the end, peppered in there with the store. I want it to be about Jesus. Uh, you know, like everything that I do. So that's, that's kind of where my head is on it. What do you think about that? Oh man, I guess so much I could talk about this, but it, again, uh, and we've shared this many times on the podcast, but, um, whatever the uh what i usually tell uh youth pastors when we're really thinking through this or this this topic here of, is i usually say this phrase is whatever you track them with is how you keep them. wow yeah um so if, you, if you're tracking attracting them with food with games uh, with my own personality, you know, yeah, yeah. friendship, you know, yeah, yeah. It, 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 fill in the blank. It could be worship band, whatever it is. And all these things are not bad. All these things are good things. Sure. Not necessarily thing. bad, yeah. but I like when, yeah, I like, to, I like to eat too. But if, if your motivation is to do these things to get these kids or whatever the kids are, then in reality, you're attracting to the wrong things. You're not talking to Jesus. Yeah. You're not attracting, you want to attract kids to Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to attract kids to. Um, again, there's a balance in, the, in that. And every, every context and every culture is, is a little bit different, a nuance of where that balance lies. Sure. Um, but I, I'll give you a perfect, perfect example. Um, a, a kind of, kind of what we just talked about. And I got it in my own story too, is I, I spent at a, in a ministry teaching, I wanted to teach apologetics. Um, I had, again, this is, this is, this is another uh, element of teaching outside of regular programming like Wednesday nights. Um, but I had, I had students that I, I wanted them to understand their, their faith, why they believe, uh, and what they believe and why they believe it and how, uh, to give the, uh, give a defense of the hope that's within them right. back to, uh, first Peter three fifteen, but with gentleness and respect. And I really want them to understand how science and faith go together and how different worldviews, how to speak into that how, and all these different things. So I spent some time going over apologetics and teaching it. And I can remember parents taking their kids out of the student ministry during that time. And then, and the comments were, uh, this is too much for my kid. I want my kid to have more fun. <laughs> and kind of the same. That's the reason I laugh when you said that because I've I've yeah. dealt with the same thing, and yeah. and luckily I had a parent who was part of that that conversation because I wasn't there and said basically said it's uh it's not about fun it's about kids knowing knowing Jesus and coming and growing in their faith, and I was very thankful for that parent. But what it's, it led up to uh, my senior leader asking me to stop teaching it. Oh no. Um, so, but yeah, so yeah, so I do think, man, there, there is just, there is a culture and every, again, every church is different. Every community is different. Every culture is different, but there is an overarching, uh, culture of, uh, of my kids need to be entertained. Well, you know, that, that mentality, um, that mentality 
because because those students, those same high school students, they're going to they're going to school. Right. Or they're going to go off to college. And I, you know, I promise you guys know this. Everybody that's listening knows this. They're going to be exposed to difficult ideas and concepts at a very high level. So like they're going to compare what they're learning in church, the teaching that you are giving them. They're going to compare and contrast that with what other professors, other teachers, other mentors are feeding them. Right. And, you know, the minute that if you're if you're giving them content down here and everybody else is up here on this level, like what do you what do you think they're going to conclude about the faith at that point? They're going to conclude that this is just some, uh, you know, backwoods, back uh, backwoods, um, you know, surface level cultural religion that doesn't have any substance to it. That's not even true. It's just something that your mama sent you to youth group. So you didn't turn out to be a bad Christian or, you know what I mean? So uh, I think, I think that's like, we've got to keep that in mind. Like these are students that are dealing with very high level material in every other area of their life. And in spiritual warfare, like they need to be equipped to deal with everything they're about to be thrown, you know, thrown up against uh, especially as Christians, right? It's true on an evangelism level at a completely different level. Uh, outreach and evangelism now, I don't, I really don't know how you feel about this, but like in my experience, I'll just speak to my experience, like three step uh, evangelism. Like I'm going to take them through Roman road. Like <laughs> it, it don't it work. Doesn't, it doesn't work because people, they don't even believe in God, right? Like they, there's, there, there are real issues there that you can't even get to the Romans road yet because you have to deal with some, like I met somebody recently that had never heard of Jesus's name. Like we, we can't even talk about sin yet. Um, we've got to get to some of these other sort of preliminary questions first. And so, you know, in our culture, in our society, when people asking the questions that they're asking in a complicated world, like you've got to have a more sophisticated faith, uh, a, a deeper faith in order to combat some of that and really meaningfully engage it. Um, and I think, I think that we're doing people a disservice as students when we try to, you know, baby, baby food, feed them, you know, with these tiny, you know, these tiny baby spoons and everything. That's <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of weird anyway. Don't you don't want to do that. I don't know what yeah. you think. Uh, no, I, I totally agree, man. Um, again, again, part of, and again, this is speaking into a lot of things that I'm going to be uh, preaching on, which is kind of, kind of ironic and kind of neat how God works with these two things together. But um, yeah, so, so overall, part of the connected to this issue when it comes to teenagers is, um, again, we, we may not say it verbally, but your actions speak a whole lot louder than what you say. Right. So if, if you or have the impression as a pastor or even a parent, we're talking about parents in this mix too, that teenagers don't have the capacity, the capacity to go deeper in their faith, hmm. to go deeper into theology, yeah. uh, which is, again, a part of their faith. Go deeper in apologetics was, hey, by the way, it's part of growing in your faith. If how to sh- uh, um, all this is connected to that. If we don't think they have the capacity of doing it, because culture says it, because by the way, ad- and I'm going to make some people mad when they listen to this, but it's okay. Um, adolescence is a social construct of culture. 
Mm. Okay. Cause all throughout history, there was no, there's no such thing as a concept of adolescence. Mm-hmm. You were a child then you were adult. There was no yeah. in between. Um, even to this day, the, re- the reason why Jewish people uh, celebrate bar mitzvah when you're 13 is the entering into adulthood. Yeah. The reason why is Hispanic cultures in the quinceanera when a girl turns 15 is the entering into adulthood. Um, there was no in-between. We created that culturally. And yes, I know there's some science that you can make an argument. I get it. But in reality, teenagers are, are a whole lot smarter than what we are allowing them to be. Well, goodness gracious. I mean, how many teenagers do you know that they get into a video game and they get the RPG like guide and like they know all of the ins and outs of every like the, like for me back in the day, it was Pokemon. I don't know what the thing is <laughs> my age. I guess it's still Pokemon, right? Yeah, like it's still Pokemon, man. Yeah. But I just say, right, like, yeah, that's a game. But like, I'm amazed at how much strategy people will learn and like all the ins and outs of the history of, of all of, you know what I mean? These characters and things. Yeah. Like, why can't they, why cannot they apply that same sort of um, love and appreciation and even obsession, right, to uh, their faith? And there's no, the answer is there's no reason that they can't. They just need to understand how good it is uh, and, and, you know, how how much it is transformative. And, and like, Jesus really is that good. It, like, really does change your life that much. And it's he's that worthy of our obsession even, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, he's that worthy— of us spending our time um, devoting our our every waking hour to, to to learning and growing and living the way that he has told us to live. You know, it's it's not just teenagers, though, man. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've been in plenty of old churches where the guy, you know, has been coming to church for 40 years and he knows everything there is to know about his old hot rod, but knows nothing about the atonement. Uh, you know, so it's like, are, are, are we really recognizing how good um, learning about these things are and like how life transforming these, these doctrines really are? Yeah, absolutely. You brought the last point, you brought up a good point. And this is something I, I tell, tell teenagers all the time is that spiritual maturity is not attached to an age. That's a good point. Uh, spiritual maturity it's not about how old you are and how long supposedly you've been a Christian or how long you've been going to church. Uh, the, uh, it's how much are you growing in your faith? Right. Uh, it's not, it's again, so I, and I tell the teenagers, and te- the thing is teenagers are smart because they see the stupidity of adults and they call it out all the time. Yep. Um, you know, like, just like Francis, uh, I had, I had students, uh, a group of students one time asking why in the world, do adults argue over stupid stuff on social media and political stuff and bicker and go back and forth? And I'm like, good question. I don't know because they're <laughs> dumb. <laughs> um, but see, so, so we think that we, th- again, they're a whole lot smaller than we give them credit to. But when it comes to kids, I've seen teenagers from ages 13, 14, 15, more spiritually mature in the faith, making disciples and make disciples radically uh, reaching their, their campus for Christ. And I have, I've dealt with seven-year-olds who believe the concept of Christianity is showing up on a Sunday, warming up pew, and then not doing anything to make to impact this world for Christ. Just showing up on Sunday, filling up a pew, going home, doing nothing. Um, and so 
I'm not saying that this oh, the seven year old is not a believer, but right. the seven year old has been a baby Christian for a long time. Right. Where I see this this young fifteen year old who's radical for the faith, sharing their faith, investing people, making disciples, and they've only been a believer for three years. Yeah. So it, it really has nothing to do with age or even longevity of even how long you're supposed to be a believer. What it has to do is how are you really growing in your faith tied into this question, theology, apologetics, and striving to follow God and, and live for him and have a deep, radical passion for him. Uh, again, it has nothing to do with age. It has to do with your willingness and your desire to grow. Yeah, let's not look down on them for being young, right? Exactly. So, uh, you know, and recognizing some of those biblical commands. But I, I do have to wonder sometimes, i just be honest, and I might make people mad for saying this. Um, sometimes I think that that has to do with a, a parent not having a, a biblical vision for what their kids can be or should be or what should be important to their kids. Uh, sometimes I've heard... You know, parents will even say, well, just let them be a kid. They don't need to deal with that serious stuff so much. Like, just let them just let them enjoy being a kid for a while. Well, my goal is not for them to enjoy, enjoy being a kid. My goal is for them to, to follow Jesus, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's, I want them to radically follow Jesus. That's what I want as a father. Um, and, like, what that looks like has to include um, going deep. And, you know, and, and to be fair, I do think that this is, is uh, worth mentioning. Yeah. You know, neither one of us are saying that, you know, it, it's, it's not possible to, to have your head in the sky, you know, to where you're, you heard the expression, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I think that that's genuinely possible, but if that's, if that happens, it's because you have bad theology. It's, it's, yeah. It happens because your theology doesn't force you into act, into action. Um, you know, so I, I think I think if you are thinking deeply, if you're working through things in, in reliance to the spirit and obedience to the Holy Spirit, uh, working through scripture in conjunction with a local church where there's authorities helping you do that in discipleship, like you're going to live it out and and they're going to hold you accountable to being consistent and living those things out. Um, so that should happen, but that can't happen without the theology in place. It just can't. There's mm -hmm. nothing about the Christian walk that is done without theology. It, all of it is theological. I, I agree more, man. I, mean, I could talk about this for hours and hours, but for sake of our listeners, uh, uh, how can we, uh, as listeners, maybe get in contact with you, maybe to go in this in deeper because we hit different topics, uh, deeper into certain topics, or to uh, where can we find your, and also where can we find your book? So how can we get in contact with you and also where we can find your book at? Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that. So um, as far as getting in contact with me, I'm, I'm a good millennial because I still have Facebook. Uh, I refuse to jump over to Instagram or Twitter. What can I say? Uh, so if you want to reach out to me through Facebook, uh, Josh Waltman, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, Liberty University, uh, happy to get in touch with you there. Also, Liberty University's uh, School of Divinity website has my information there. Um, my email is jcwaltman, W-A-L-T-M-A-N, at liberty.edu. Uh, happy to connect with you that way. Um, 
as far as the book goes, um, I'm on Amazon, I'm on barnesandnoble.com, I'm on the publisher's website, which is Whip and Stock. Um, but please check it out if you have questions, if you have any needs at all. Um, if you just want to get on the phone and talk theology or theology strategy, or how can you introduce some theology and, and uh, entry-level entry level theology into your, uh, into your teaching, I'd love to do that, I'd love to talk. Um, in fact, I, I live to do that kind of stuff. So uh, hit me up. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for coming out on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It was a joy. Man, I am very thankful for, for Josh hashing this out. Again, I know this is this is more of an academic book. It's going to be a little bit of a harder read. But I think every pastor should pick up this book and read it and go and have an understanding of how to grasp this issue of how when you're dealing with a student or you're dealing with a member person in your congregation or if you're here and you're just a youth leader you're not in a full-time ministry someone in your job of asking this type of question of where's god okay where's god in that situation why don't see him why don't see the miraculous where's god yeah and i appreciate that he takes it from a trinitarian standpoint Um, even that that issue alone has been attacked recently uh, within the church the idea of God being a trinity and uh, and so that that I I, I don't know if I don't know how you feel about presuppositional apologetics Ryan but (laughs) um, that that's a good presupposition to come at this topic from it is understanding that it's not just God that we have to figure this stuff out about it's he's a trinitarian god it's god one and three and and that's one of those things where we may never quite understand that particular concept um but you, you cannot argue with the pages of scripture so um i'm hoping that this interview is an encouragement to those of you who listen um i i haven't read the book yet but i trust ryan so uh get the book uh, you can find it on amazon uh, i don't know where else you can find it but i'm sure that there are uh, just, you know, download those plugins on Google Chrome that allow you to do price checking across the internet. It'll check for you uh, once you go to the page. And um, we want to thank you guys for listening again. Uh, if you haven't yet, please take time to leave a comment or star review. That'll let us know how we're doing. It also gives you an opportunity to uh, let us know if there's something that uh, you want to talk to us, you want us to talk about. Uh, it also keeps our content near the top of the search results if there's youth workers out there looking for new content. And if you want to connect with us directly, uh, you can always email us. It's a super short uh, email address, youthandculturepodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> or you can find us on social media. Uh, we have a Facebook page and group, Youth and Culture Facebook group. Uh, and Ryan and I are both in there. And we will chat back and forth with you. And we're also on Instagram as well. Well, guys, stay tuned for our next episode.